0: Today we'll be talking a little bit about the topic of uh, sexuality, and so before I kind of get into the scripture, um, I wanted to say a couple things. First of all, uh, this is not going to be uh, a sermon where I'm kind of laying out uh, an argument for or against and going back and forth. We may have opportunity to do that in another venue at some point, but we're not going to be doing that This morning. But I also say it um, just as a warning for those of you who have children. uh, Again, we're not going to be diving into this uh, explicitly, obviously, but if you have children who you think, you know what, this is not the right time or the right place for them to hear about this. I kind of wanted to let you know that. And so I'll, uh, I will say, uh, I will read the scripture and then I'll say a prayer. And if you think, you know what, I'd rather my children not hear it. The prayer would be a great time for you to kind of, uh, uh, you can lead them out if you want to, or if you would prefer not to hear about it, you can also uh, walk out and it'll, it'll be a longer prayer and a shorter sermon. So. We are going to uh, look at the passage today in the Gospel of John, chapter 7, uh, and I'll be reading from the 53rd verse through the 11th verse of the 8th chapter, and so I invite you to hear these words from John. Each of them went home while Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again to the temple, and all The people came to him and he sat down and began to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and making her stand before all of them, they said to him, teacher, this woman was caught in the very act of committing adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? And they said this to test him so that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let anyone among you who was without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And once again, he bent down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, They went away, one by one, beginning with the elders, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus straightened up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, sir. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go your way, and from now on, do not sin again. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God, and let's pray. God, we gather here this morning looking for and asking for your grace and your wisdom. We thank you, God, that we have this opportunity to gather together as brothers and sisters in Christ to celebrate what you have done for us and to ask, who would you call us to be? What would you call us to do and where you would call us to go? And so I pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts will be acceptable to you, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen and amen. Jesus is teaching in the temple when the scribes and the Pharisees arrive. It's easy, of course, for us to cast aspersions or dismiss these leaders in church, and yet it's important, of course, for us to realize that scripture was incredibly important to them. Their hearts May not have been pure, but then again, whose of ours is, really? So they enter into the temple with their love and their knowledge of Scripture and with this woman. A woman, as one version puts it, that was propped up in the middle for all to see. Teacher. Teacher. This woman was caught in the very act of committing adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? It's a test, as John so explicitly points out. In other words, things are not necessarily what they appear to be on the surface. There's really a different question that is being asked of Jesus. One of the things about the question, of course, is that actually it has very little to do with the woman who was right there in their midst. Yes, she is there, but she is clearly a prop, basically inconsequential to the real conversation that is going on. You see, what these church leaders are asking, what they truly want to know is, Jesus, do you really believe in the Bible? Because it's clear, Jesus, what scripture says. And if you don't, well, we want you to know that these stones that we have in our hands will be headed in your direction. The standoff has been declared, you see. Is Jesus for scripture or is he for this adulterous woman? So what does Jesus say? Well, nothing at first. No, he merely, he bends over and he begins drawing on the ground. And so, of course, what is the question that everyone asks when it comes to this particular part of the story? What is he drawing? Everyone wants to know. Is he he writing down the sins of each person that is gathered? Is he writing down other scripture passages that he thinks might be helpful in this situation? John doesn't say, of course, which is both maddening and perhaps telling. Because if it was important, guess what? What? John would have told us what he was writing. Perhaps as someone has suggested, we miss the point if we get caught up in what he is writing. Perhaps what is more significant is the fact that Jesus is giving some space, is slowing everything down, is allowing everyone to breathe, is allowing himself time to simply think. But the leaders, of course, they were having nothing of it. They kept asking him the question again and again and again. Or as the message says, they kept badgering him. Come on, Jesus. You can't just sit there. You have to do something. But Jesus was fairly nonplussed, it seems. He stayed down until finally he stood up. Let anyone among you who was without sin be the first to throw a stone at her, he says. Now what exactly is Jesus doing here? One of the things that he's doing is that he understands that the church leaders at this time, that they have really made this whole topic, this whole issue, impersonal. They have dehumanized the woman and the situation. See, by asking the question of them, or by asking them who of them is without sin, what Jesus does is he forces this topic and the situation and the Scripture to become human again. He forces them to look at their own humanity, but, 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 but also notice that Jesus here, he doesn't do it in some kind of great fanfare. He doesn't do it with some kind of blatant confrontation. He doesn't do it and then he stares at them to see whether or not any of them would dare pick up a stone. No, he says what he says and then he crouches back down. He gives them space. He gives them freedom to think about this issue on their own, to 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 inspect their own lives to search their own hearts and one by one they slowly begin to leave john tells us that the oldest ones were the ones who left first, which is, as someone has pointed out, is perhaps because it is the oldest amongst us who know ourselves better than anyone else. It is the oldest amongst us, hopefully, who know their own shortfalls, their own weaknesses, their own sin. Finally, Jesus then stands back up again, and he doesn't say anything to her in any kind of command at first. No, he he begins a dialogue, as brief as it may be. He begins with asking her a question. Oh, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No, sir, she says. And then echoing John 3, 17, he says, then neither do I condemn you. Go your way and sin no more. In other words, whenever you meet Jesus, change or transformation is almost always on the docket. Now what's interesting to think about when it comes to this particular passage is as one pastor kind of pointed out to me recently is that when you go back, it is striking To realize that Jesus never answered their question. Did you notice that he never answered the question of the the Pharisees and the scribes? What does Jesus do? He changes the conversation. Let me say it again Jesus never answers their question, he changes the conversation. One of the powerful things that seems to me about Scripture, and I've said this before, is the reality that no matter how far away we are from it, how, while the details may have changed, Jesus really, or or the stories, tend to be the very same. One of the questions that perhaps I have been most asked since I came here, after the kind of obligatory question, right, of how in the world did you talk Megan into marrying you, after that one, is the question, what do you think about homosexuality? What do you think about gay marriage? I have to admit, I have been fairly reticent to answer that question to those who have asked, not because I don't know what I believe, but because I can't get over the fact that more often than not, there are really other questions that they are really trying to get at. That really, in some way, what it is, is a test. Now, what questions they really want to ask you, or what questions they're really thinking about, well, that depends upon what side of the aisle you happen to be upon. If you are on the right side of the aisle, what you're really asking more often than not, it seems to me, is, do you really believe in the Bible, Jerry? Or do you believe in in God's truth, or do you believe in the truth of the world? Are you with us? Are you on my side? Should we stay at ZPC, or should we go right down the street where we can find a place that's a bit more comfortable for us? And if you find yourself on the left side of the aisle, oftentimes the real questions are, do you really love people, Jerry? Are you homophobic? Are you on our side? Or should I go someplace down the street where I will be more comfortable So yeah, I will be honest with you. I am reticent to answer this question no matter how many times it has been asked, no matter how many times people have said, when are you going to preach on this? Because it seems so often it's not the real question that they're wanting answered. The other reason, quite frankly, is because of the fact that much like in our story, though we may be talking about real people, it is so easy To make these people, to turn them into props, setting them up, using them so that we can get at the real questions again that we have. And so we ask the question, what do you think about homosexuality or gay marriage? And then we hold the stones in our hands, ready to see whether or not we agree with your answer. And if we don't, we are more than happy to fling those stones in your direction, or at least the modern version of those stones, which is a post on Facebook. Going to another church and talking about the fact about how your previous church has clearly is clearly no longer Bible based or is full of homophobic people. But I am here this morning to tell you that as soon as we allow the topic of sexuality or gay marriage to become about issues and we forget the people who are involved, we have lost. And what we have to do is be willing, just like Jesus, to change the conversation. One of the ways that Jesus did this was that he refused to allow scripture as a tool to damage others. Here's the truth. There's no denying it. The Pharisees and the scribes, they were absolutely right. It is what scripture said. And yet again, remember that Jesus refused to answer that particular question that they had. You see, the primary desire of Jesus always is first and foremost, make no mistake about it, is to be in relationship with others. And that does not begin by being right about a particular point of the Bible. It begins by experiencing the love and grace of Jesus. And if even Jesus is reluctant to use Scripture as a battering ram, then surely we as his followers should do likewise. Jesus also changed the conversation by not giving into the anxiety of the moment. There are so many frantic Christians, it seems to me, that I meet. Frantic about what's going on in society, a sense that we have to do something. We need to take a bold stand. Jesus in this story does something which has to be so annoying to the Pharisees and the scribes who knew that they were right he starts playing in the sand. Can't you imagine their anger? My guess is at some point, even the woman was thinking, come on, Jesus, do something. But Jesus refuses to get caught up in the agendas of each side, no matter how important those sides thought they were. Jesus, not the world, was in control. He needn't be anxious or frantic, which is something it seems to me we would all be wise to remind ourselves of that Jesus is in control. Of course, Jesus also changes the conversation by his willingness to come alongside the woman. He willingly absorbs the anger and the anxiety of the accusers. And because of that, and this is vital to see, because of his willingness to stand beside her, to even take a stone if he had to, he is then given the opportunity to encourage and to challenge her. As someone said, it's almost impossible to believe that this woman leaves Jesus unchanged. And if we are not willing to put ourselves on the front line, if we are not willing to put our own lives in danger for people, especially those with whom we may disagree, then hear me, sisters and brothers, we have not earned the right to offer any words of challenge or correction to them. Jesus also changes it by making the impersonal become personal, as I've already said. They toss her into the square like a prop. They say, this woman While Jesus engages in conversation, not about her, but with her. See, this is what Jesus does again and again. You know this, you know the Bible, that while the religious leaders are always yelling and accusing Jesus and angry at Jesus for the fact that he's eating with these Pharisees, these tax collectors, these prostitutes, these sinners, Jesus is just actually talking with them, eating with them, loving them. They are not a point to be made. They are a people to be loved. This doesn't mean that Jesus is going to leave you alone. This doesn't mean that Jesus is not going to try and speak into every single part of your life. But it does mean that Jesus begins not where others wish you were, but with where you are. See, the challenge that each of us here face on both sides of the issue is that we prefer to see the other side, not as complex human beings, but as cardboard cutouts depicting everything that is wrong in the world. It's easier for all of us to think that everyone who agrees with gay marriage has no concern for the Bible or is simply giving in to the pressure of the world. It's easy for those, uh, for those of us who to think that those who are against gay marriage simply must be hateful or have no sense of grace. And while there are certainly those who fit into those cardboard caricatures, by and large, the people that I know, they do not fit into those caricatures at all. And I have been convinced of that for the last 30 years years. Many of you, you know my story. When I was 10, my parents separated. When I was 11, they got divorced and I had really lived a pretty doggone good life up until that point. I can't ever remember seeing my parents fight before the separation. We got to travel the world because my father was in the Navy. I always had wonderful opportunities to annoy my older sister. It was great. It really was. Until it wasn't. Which happened on a particular Sunday afternoon when we were living in Seattle and my father wanted to take me to the International House of Pancakes. And so we got in there and he, he sat down next to me in the booth and he, he said, you know, son, he said, sometimes things happen and we, we just don't know why. For kind of going on to tell me that, that he and my mother would be separating. It was the strangest thing. Because it really did seem to me like everything was perfect and just as it should be. And what, what bothered me, what, what kept giving me so much trouble is that I couldn't figure out why it was that this had to happen. And nobody would tell me. So finally, a few months into it, I did what 11-year-old boys are apt to do. And I, I said, I'm running away. And so that's exactly what I did. And I, I ran away. And I'm sure that it was probably 30 or so minutes later and I was back again. And I was lying down in my bed. My mother finally came in and she laid down to me and she said, you know, I can't tell you why. But if you guess it, I won't say no. I was a pretty savvy 11-year-old. I I knew I'd seen some movies and so I I said to her, of course the obvious, mom, is is it another woman? She said, no, but in a, in a kind of a strange way. So I said laughingly, is it, is it another man? And then there was silence. She didn't say no. So when I'm asked the question... Jerry, what do you think about homosexuality or gay marriage? It is never a far away or distant hypothetical question that I can answer with dispassion or without pain. See, I hold the scripture like this, and I hold my father like this so that when someone says to me as they have you know if you really loved your dad then you wouldn't you would have nothing to do with him until he repents or or when i'm in college and one of my good friends says y- you know i when he watches television and he sees a gay man dying of aids he says i hate it when they show compassion on them i am confused and i am angered and i'm crushed Just as I am confused and angered and crushed when someone tells me, as they have, that if I don't simply accept every part of my father, then there's no way I can genuinely love him. The truth is that because this is about people, it is messy and it is painful. And when we try to make it clean and easy and painless, we are not Being honest. And if I can be so bold as to say, we are not being Jesus, we are not being the one who was always with people first. There is a reason he did not answer the question. However, and this shouldn't surprise any of you, I am not Jesus. Because I am your pastor, I will answer the question about gay marriage, but I can't do it hypothetically. I can't do it with some hypothetical person because that is too easy and it doesn't cause me any pain. So I will answer the question as if my father has asked whether or not I would officiate at his wedding. My answer will be first and foremost, dad. You know I love you. And I do. No matter the pain, no matter the struggles But, and this would not surprise him, I, I'm not comfortable officiating at your wedding. I have wrestled with passages and scriptures that deal with sexuality. And I know that some have become convinced otherwise. But I continue to side with what the church has said for 2,000 years. I continue to struggle with the reality that so many of us are finding our identity in something beyond Christ. And that is not restricted to sexuality. Whether it is in our money or our jobs or our abilities or our inabilities or our heterosexuality or our homosexuality, there has always been, there will always be temptation to find our meaning and our identity in something outside of Christ. Your true self is found in Jesus. But I want you all to know that this is not and will never be for me the most important thing. Nor do I think this topic should be the most important thing here at ZPC. I know that there are some of you who disagree with me. But I have to be honest. What is most critical to me is that people, all people, know that they are loved by Jesus. The reason I won't keep talking about this is not because I don't have an opinion, but it's because I am so much more convinced that what Jesus wants is for people to know that his grace is for them, not where we want them to be, not where they may want themselves to be, but right where they are, right where you are. And if you want to follow Jesus... And if you are willing and open to being changed by Jesus, as all of us have to be willing and open to be changed by him, then I will put my arm around you wherever you are, and I will walk with you. And if stones begin to fly from this church or from other churches, I will wrap my arms around you as tightly as I can. And I will speak the truth in love to you, and I ask that you will speak the truth in love to me. And when we disagree, and we will disagree at times, I hope and I pray that we can continue to stay focused on the mission to which we have been called by God, making disciples and releasing them for service into our broken world. You, me, This world is broken. But what is more important than that is knowing that we serve a God who was broken for us on the cross. For us and for our sin. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but shall have eternal life. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Amen.